0: Today on Physically Spiritual, I explore unity, connection, and dependency. How we are not designed to be self-sufficient. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. So I'm starting a new series. I'm titling The Macronutrients of the Soul. Uh, a few series ago, I talked about food, and during that series, this idea kind of percolated to the forefront. And, and as I've been going through and trying to present this content, I've been struggling to develop a more digestible framework to provide to people. You know, I, I could give, you know, a whole map of dozens of concepts that work together one integrating health and holiness, one working on uh, physical health, emotional health, spiritual health. And the problem is, I think, that when you put all these concepts together, it gets so complicated that it's just hard to wrap your head around it. Uh, and one of my kind of dreams is to provide more a more digestible framework to help people to understand all of these concepts together and then give people the tools to make sense of this in their own life. And this is one of my attempts to do that this idea of the macronutrients of the soul, and I'd propose there therefore, the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. This idea of macronutrient comes out of nutrition. Macronutrients are sort of macro as in big, the big things that we need to, to have nutrition. So these are fats, carbs, and proteins being the three macronutrients that nutritionists talk about. So we're talking about kind of the foundations of of nutrition, we're not getting too much into the weeds, and so when we look at the perspective of the whole person—body and soul, mind and heart, physically and spiritually—and ask the question, "What do you need to flourish, to be healthy, to be holy?" My best answer to that question are are these concepts, which are the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful. These concepts have been talked about in philosophy for for centuries as what's been called the transcendentals. The transcendentals, these are, are qualities that are attributed to God. A, a lot of the ways we talk about God are, are, um, are kind of in negative language. Where we talk about God as being almighty, meaning it's unlimited power or, or without time, being eternal, being, um, being infinite, being not finite. So all of these are ways of talking about God in the negative, sort of stating what God isn't. These transcendentals are, are kind of coming at it the opposite way. These are experiences that we have something of. We have an experience of unity. We have an experience of goodness and of truth. And then we attribute them to God in sort of an, an infinite sense, in an unbounded sense. And this is an understanding by way of analogy. It's a positive way of understanding God. So I want to take that idea and flip it on its head that the one, the true, the good, and the beautiful are things that we receive from God and they're the most essential things we need to survive. So God gives us these things in immediately in, in creation and is holding everything in being. And so there's a certain amount of unity, truth, goodness, and beauty that we receive from the created order. But then God also gives it to us through his supernatural order through his revelation, through his grace, through what we have in the scripture and through what we have in the church. So there's, there's also oneness, truth, goodness, and beauty that we receive um, through revelation too. So th- in this series, I'm going to be trying to put all of this together and go through these four macronutrients of the soul one by one and explore how these are our deepest human needs and how they're the essential ingre- ingredients to our flourishing, to our health, and to our holiness. So I just want to start out this first episode on unity, on oneness, on connection, on our need for other people. There's a a deep myth and lie that goes through our culture, and it's this idea of a self-sufficient individual. You might think of the caricature of the, the John Wayne cowboy, you know, off on his own, on the frontier, needing no one else, providing for all their needs, able to handle any problem and any difficulty that comes up basically someone that has no need for other people, emotional, physical, spiritual, or otherwise. And and this this caricature is a myth, it's a lie. It's a deep misunderstanding of human nature that comes to us through our society. So so Pope St. John Paul II proclaimed that we're in God's image and likeness by becoming a communion of persons. It's built into the very basic design of humanity, of human nature, to be connected, to be in union, to be in communion with others. And this was expressed from the very beginning in God creating Adam and Eve in his own image and likeness. And them being a bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, by them being a couple who, who loved each other and knew each other, they were more an image of God than they would have been just on their own. And we're called to enter into this kind of communion of persons to be in the image and likeness of God. So that's kind of our highest calling. And if we think about this developmentally, right, we're we're born connected, We're, we're created, we're conceived in the womb of another person, literally connected to that other person, receiving nutrients through the umbilical cord, completely dependent on that other person for our survival, for our protection, for our nutrients. And there's a deep truth about human nature that's communicated to us in this state in utero. And we're destined for a kind of analogous state of connection. Heaven is going to be in some way kind of like a womb. It's being perfectly connected to God in the embrace of God. And we might even describe it as sort of the womb of the church or maybe Mary or, or of, of God's, God's love. Um, and in that state, our, our ultimate destiny, will return to, to make it obvious and plain to us that we are utterly dependent for everything on others. And the space in between, right, from the moment we're born until the moment we die, I would propose that we remain equally as dependent on God, on other people, and on everything that's given to us, And we live in various states of either being in touch with reality, meaning we acknowledge and live in that reality, or out of touch with that reality, living in a delusion, in a a lie, in a lie of self-reliance, of self-dependency, that we don't need other people. We're, We're radically exposed and vulnerable to the world, and science proclaims this and our faith proclaims this in so many different ways. Let me just run through a couple first epigenetics. So we're given our genes and based on our environment, the experiences that we have, our genes literally flip on or off. This means that the expression of our genes is dependent on our environment that's presented to us. So so in order for my, my genes for a certain amount amount of them to work. Now, some of them are are kind of hard encoded, like that my eyes are a certain color or that my heart cells are heart cells and my brain cells are brain cells. But others of them flip on or off depending on the environment that I'm in. Another concept, this one out of neurology called neuroception, that our body is constantly detecting states of safety or danger quicker than I'm conscious of them. And then my autonomic nervous system is is priming then either to, to survive Right, to deal with a potential threat, or to connect and be safe and social with others. So this neuroception is happening quicker than my perception, and I can't turn it off. So my emotional state, my neurological state, is constantly vulnerable and exposed to the environment that I'm coming in contact with. Let's take another idea out of childhood development like attachment. This foundational relationship of love that I receive from my primary caregivers as a human being, I'm, I'm designed with this deep need for connection and love, and I'm dependent on that in order to get all of my needs cared for as a child. So we all have this foundational posture to the world that uh, psychologists call attachment. And we either have a safe and a healthy attachment or, or maybe an avoidant attachment or, or something like that, depending on how our primary caregivers loved us when we were very little. We also receive language from others. We don't often think of this, but I'm dependent on others to receive language, to receive words, concepts of understanding. I'm also dependent on others for virtues. You know, Virtues are really, it's a common good, and we're dependent on others to receive them. Even Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, when he talks about growing in virtue, how we move from being vicious to virtuous, he lands on the idea of friendship, that it's friendship. That changes us. You know, that that modern idea that we're sort of the sum of our seven closest friends or that we become like the people we spend our time with, right? All of this echoes through the ages and reveals the fact that we are radically vulnerable to the world around us, to be changed by the ideas that we hear, to be affected by the images we see, uh, to be moved by the experiences that we have. And this isn't something I can choose to turn off. I can't turn that vulnerability off. I can live in an illusion. I can live in a lie that I'm not vulnerable. But by doing that, right now I become a victim to it all. As our Lord says, the truth will set you free. This idea that we receive language, that we receive virtue, I want to point out an interesting case. A young uh, Ukrainian girl named Oksana Malaya this girl unfortunately grew up with a father who was uh, reportedly alcoholic and, and negligent. She was raised by dogs. And she was taken from uh, the care of that person when she was seven years old. And when, when she was found, she could not speak. She would interact by barking. She would walk on all fours. She would act behaviorally like a dog. Right. She received the world from dogs, and she learned to act like a dog. She learned to relate like a dog. Um, right. the, the meaning she was given, she was, she was that vulnerable to her environment. Right. Acting like a human wasn't hard-coded in her. Now, the beautiful thing is through, through extensive um, therapy in a special school she was placed in, right, she, she developed the ability to speak. Which was amazing. Probably she she heard some language early in life that kind of primed the neurological wiring, so she didn't completely lose the capacity. But then later in life, she gained the ability to speak um, and was able to uh, to find meaningful work and potentially find relationships and other things. So this is this is the beauty of it. Even though, right, she received something in particular in her childhood, we we need to avoid. Some kind of a, a fatalistic determinism about our history. This is one of the biggest, um, I think, one of the biggest lies in our culture today. Is it's kind of like a, a parental determinism that the way that I uh, like feed my child or hold my child or or choose to behave towards my child like de- determines their whole future. Like whether or not my son will get in Oxford depends on whether or not I gave him enough bananas in his first six months of life, or something like that. All right? There's this this uh, this error in our modern thinking uh, that really denies the role of free will and the ongoing plasticity of the person. Meaning, we, we, although there are important events and important things that get laid down early in life, the brain, our body, our mind, our heart remain plastic and malleable throughout our life. So we, we remain vulnerable to the world around us and we continue to be formed by it. This is what Jesus had to say at the end of the Gospel of John when he's praying for his followers. He says, I pray not only for them, but also those who will believe in me through their word, so that may they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them. Even as you loved me, right? This beautiful passage from John 17 of Jesus's prayer, his heart for his followers and those that would follow his followers. This idea of closeness, there's nothing Closer, <laughs> and even closeness isn't really an appropriate word, than the persons of the Trinity. They're completely one. They're one nature, but separate persons. So the human mind can't even really fathom the unity and diversity happening in the Trinity. But this idea that we're called to that level of connectedness, but it's interesting what he says at the end of this line that in them, and you and me, he says, that that they may be brought to perfection as one. That they may be brought to perfection as one. That line has a resonance for me. That they may be brought to perfection as one. I think this this line could imply a couple things. One, that we can't be brought to perfection separate from one another. That it's only by being one, only by being connected, only by being a communion of persons, That we're capable of perfection. It implies that a human being on their own isn't complete, that we're made for another. So then it also then implies that the process of being perfected, of being made holy, of being healed, the process of being perfected is, is radically a process of becoming connected. So I would say healing and connection are synonymous. That healing leads to connection and connection leads to healing. They're they're interdependent. Uh, We we might um, say that it's not so much a cause and effect as it's, it's a phenomenon where both are simultaneous, right? They both come together and are dependent on one another. In the Psalms, it says, iron is sharpened by iron. One person sharpens another. One person sharpens another. We need to enter into relationships where we're, where we're challenged. I think a lot of people come to a kind of truce with themselves, and they accomplish this by coming to a place of comfortable isolation, this kind of comfortable isolation where they, they kind of take care of all their own needs. They get enough money. They get enough stuff. Uh, and then they, they live alone, maybe with one other person, and then they sort of show up to things. They show up to an event at their church, to that social club, to that, that thing they do. But they don't really live a life of connection. And they're able to attain a, a certain amount of apparent virtue. But it's because they, they're never placed in situations where they're actually challenged. They're never placed in situations where they, they're actually the worst version of themselves, where they're, they're put in under stress, or they're under difficulty, or, or they're on mission together. And so what happens is, I think that, that subtle defects can hide under this veneer of never doing anything apparently wrong. And it's not that the person has achieved virtue. It's that they're never put in situations where their virtue is exercised. right? And we need to be very, uh, very vigilant against this kind of action in our life of isolating ourselves from challenges, from challenging people from families that we have difficulties with, from uh, from people that we don't agree with, from people in different states of life with different ways of thinking, right? It's this, this constant interaction where the growth happens. You need the stimulus to get the response, and this happens in relationship. Uh, we we have a terrible opportunity today where more and more things that have been historically provided in, by loved ones, are being more and more provided by systems. And this is something that, that our, our society and our government can provide, especially in the Western world. Right? If I run out of food, I don't have to ask my neighbor for a loaf of bread. Right? I can just go sign up for food stamps. If I'm at an advanced age and I need someone to care for me, my loved ones don't need to step in and care for me. Right? I have Medicaid and that will put me in a nursing facility for an unlimited amount of time at the end of my life. I don't need um, I don't need to barter I don't need to trade. I have currency that can get me anything I would ever want. Um, if I ever need a service to be provided for me, I can hire a contractor to do it. If I ever need any item, I can go to a department store or an online store and acquire those things so we're we're placed in a situation in an illusion that presents a false world to us that states that. That we can, by relying on the government and the systems that it ensures that we can live a life where we need no one else. but this is a great danger because the deepest, most basic need of the human heart is connection. right So as we then we try to to, to deal with this this kind of deeper level of human need, we're faced with the fact that even though more and more and more of our needs are provided for, that we have this kind of net that nobody can fall through, that we don't have people starving to death or or dying of exposure to the elements, we have an increasing number of things like suicide. People aren't starving to death. They're just killing themselves. And, And I think one of the deep reasons for this phenomenon is this idea of connection. We're even provided with false systems of connection, things that we can lean in and get an illusion of connection, things like social media and pornography and other things like this that, that, that trick our body into thinking that we're being connected to other people, right? I'm seeing another person. They're exposing themselves to me. They, they seem to want me. And it creates this phenomenon in our body. Our body reacts as if it's actually happening. I can go on a website and see other people's faces and see what's happening in their life and share what's happening in my life. And it creates the phenomenon as if I have relationships, as if I have friends, But since these realities aren't enfleshed, there's a part of me that ends up not fulfilled, not truly connected, not getting what I truly need. So I'm left with the the phenomenon that I'm receiving what I need without the satiety that goes along with it, the actual experience of receiving it. So then it creates an unlimited feedback loop, basically like an, an infinite craving a kind of addiction cycle with these substances because it, it presents our person with the phenomenon of receiving what we need, but we never actually receive it. So there is never a satiety and never that's enough. I have what I need. I'm okay. I can rest now. Experience that goes along with it on the other side. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes in the fourth chapter. It says, again, I saw this vanity under the sun. Those all alone with no companion with neither child nor sibling, with no end to their toil and no satisfaction from riches, from, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good things? This also is vanity and a bad business. Two are better than one. They get a good wage for their toil. If the one falls, the other will help the fallen one. But woe to the solitary person. If that one should fall, there is no other to help. So also, if two sleep together, they keep each other warm. How can one alone keep warm? Where one alone may be overcome, two together can resist. A three-ply cord is not easily broken. A three-ply cord is not easily broken. Right? Sometimes people use this passage as a surface level, like you need accountability, you need support, you need people to call. But I think it's even deeper than this. It talks about this vanity you know, toiling, the satisf- no satisfaction from riches, right? That's such a great microcosm of, of our society, right? If I could only get enough money, then everything will be okay. I just need a big enough 401k. I need to be sort of self-endowed. I could work really hard and make enough money that I could live off the interest, and then everything will be fine, right? And all of this is just craziness. It says they get a good wage for their toil, They get a good wage for their toil. What's it talking about here? He's not talking about getting more money. He's talking about the wage is in the toil that they get relationships, right? And Jesus echoes this in the gospel where he says, make friends with the mammon of iniquity, meaning that the the money that you receive from the system, the best use of that is that you love other people with it. And by loving other people with it, you get relationships, you get love, you get what you actually need. So money isn't the end, and money isn't even uh, primarily an end to get the other objects that we need. Money is, is is best used as a means of relationship. So this is what a parent does with their children, right? If you want to know that all your money is not yours, have kids, and you got to dump your money into those relationships, their medical bills, their food, their schooling, their everything. But what do you end up with, right? If you end up hopefully with some of the most meaningful relationships of your life. And this is a a, a factor that we need to expand, right? It's, it's written into our bodies with our children, and this is something that our, our society hasn't completely blotted out yet, although it's probably working towards it of childhood without parents and the state even providing more care for the children where parents become unnecessary and, you know, like you don't need to have children, so we'll have people that don't have children, and they can be the happy ones, and then the breeders over there and they— kind of carry the toil and we'll eventually get robots to raise our children that are born in test tubes or whatever. You know, like it'll go crazier, I'm sure. But this basic idea written in the human body, written in in our motherhood and fatherhood, that everything we have is given over to the child, I think we can learn from that that hasn't yet been blotted out and then write that pattern into our life. From the beginning, it started to be blotted out. Cain and Abel, when he, he kills his brother and God asks him, his response is, I'm not my brother's keeper. Right? That's one of the earliest lies in the scripture. I am my brother's keeper. And the more I live like that's the case, the more I'll be richly blessed. Right? That's the good wage for my toil. That's the good wage for my toil, that I could love others and they love me back. My my deepest security isn't the fact that Uncle Sam can keep printing money forever. I don't know if he can or not. That's not the point of the show. Uh, My deepest security is that I'm surrounded by relationships of love. And as all of the systems in the world break around us, that love can't be taken away, right? That's the three-ply cord. That's the three-ply cord. How do we do this? Let's go back to the scripture. The Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter three. He says, stop lying to one another. Stop lying to one another. I could just stop there, but the rest is good too. It says, since you have taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed for knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew. Circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If one has a grievance against another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also do. And over all of these, put on love. That is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of Christ control your hearts, the peace into which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. This passage is an instruction manual on how to live together, but it's also an instruction manual on how to learn how to love and how to reach that perfection, that good wage that the scripture talks about. The, The very beginning of it stop lying to one another. The truth will set you free. Right. That's what our Lord said. The truth will set you free. Stop lying to one another. Since you have taken off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, right? That's that's a, a present progressive expression there, is being renewed, meaning it's it's sort of progressively completed. So it's it's implying here that even though you've taken off the old self, you've been had some conversion, you've been baptized, you've sought the Lord. Right? There's a part of you that's continuously being renewed. So this not lying to one another is in the context that you're not perfect yet. You need to talk about your struggles with one another. There's foreknowledge in the image of its creator. Then he goes on to some of these different like categories people used to put themselves in. If today we might say like Republican versus Democrat, or liberal versus conservative, or, or rich versus poor, or or Gen Z versus uh, versus millennials versus uh, boomers or something like that. You know, we have all these new categories we put people in. It says, put then on as God chosen ones, holy and beloved, heartfelt compassion. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If one has a grievance against the other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so must you also do. They are Father, forgive others as I have, forgive me as I have forgiven those who have trespassed against me. Right? This is uh, Christ is in is all and in all. This is Jesus's prayer that we could be one in Him, and that's the bond of love. That's the bond of perfection. And notice what it says here: it says, "Let the peace of Christ control the heart." The peace of Christ control the heart. Notice the cause and effect there. It's not that our heart is under control. Uh, it's not that that peace comes as a result of our heart being under control. It's that our heart is under control as a result of peace. All right, so how can we attain peace before being perfect? How can we attain peace before being perfect? I believe the answer to this is relationship. We receive this peace by being known and being loved, by being known and being loved, by being received in the way that st paul is receive is is describing in this scripture we receive peace and it's in the context of that peace that we then have the ability to control our hearts i'm thinking of um yeah insights that come out of the life model and uh and 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 ideas that come out of uh, uh the idea of ideas of neurotheology developed by dr jim wilder and one of the ideas that he he talks about in there is that um that this uh the part of our of our of our neurowiring that's under control when we're dysregulated, when we're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, when we feel afraid, that this part of, of our neurowiring runs on relational love, on attachment love. And he says that the, the way that it decides how to behave in those difficult moments is it asks the question, not what should I do? It asks the question, what do my people do? What do my people do? So if we want to show up differently in those moments of difficulty, the answer isn't to, to know more and to try harder because all of that's involved with the, the wrong part of our wiring. What we need to have is we need to have people in our lives who love in those spaces. And we enter into those relationships by, by being known by them and knowing them, by not lying to one another, by being real with one another, by really sharing what's happening by being honest, by being vulnerable, by letting ourselves be received as we are, and then experiencing ourselves being received and being loved in those places. That's that's what gives us that peace that lets us control our hearts. Uh, When when a a mammal begins to be dysregulated, the first stopgap to find safety is for them to orient to the people around them to look for, for someone to be safe with. And if we can find someone to be safe with, then we can remain in character throughout whatever that trial is. So thinking of this then now, like as when God's a person we're, we're in relationship with. So the heart of holiness isn't virtue, it's relationship to God. And virtue is an outcome of that relationship with God and others. And then we also then have relationships with others who are called to be You could say God with flesh on. They're called to be people who who God loves us through, and we love God through them. And it's by these relationships of love that we can be perfect, that we can have peace. When we're we're breaking this out a little bit more, I like to think about vulnerability in three layers, three layers of vulnerability, three layers to this stop lying to one another. Uh, So think of like your difficult stuff, the stuff that you don't want to talk about, the stuff that you feel shame about, the stuff that the enemy whispers in your ear when you think about it. If anyone knew this, they wouldn't love me. That stuff, that stuff, whatever it is for you. There's three different ways to be vulnerable with this. The first one is, it's like, I haven't struggled with it or I'm distant from it, right? It's like far away. It's like you share it with somebody like, you know, I, I really struggle with lust sometimes, right? You haven't maybe struggled in a while. You're not struggling right now, but you're like sharing. It's like a category of thing that you've struggled with or it's something that you had a hard time with in the past. Like that's a certain level of self-revelation, but there's still some distance from it, right? There's still, um, it, it is vulnerable, but it could be a lot more vulnerable. The second kind of struggle is like after it's happened. This is the like admitting your defeat, the going to confession, the making amends to someone whom you've hurt, the asking for forgiveness, right? This is this is something more vulnerable. Right? This is, I, I did this. It's, it's here. It's present. It wasn't that long ago, and I need your mercy. I hurt you. Um, you know, I, I need forgiveness. I need to be known in this space. But there's an even deeper layer of vulnerability than this. The third and deepest layer of vulnerability is during it, at the moment, in the moment when you've started to struggle or when you're about to, in that moment when the whole world has sort of drifted away and there's nothing else there other than whatever it is, whatever your thing is, right? If you can share it with somebody in that moment, share it with God, share it with another person, share it with your spouse. And in that moment, you realize like, I cannot do it without you, right? That's the vulnerability the legitimate need that I can't do it, that I'm powerless, I'm hopeless without you. Right, That's the third and deepest layer of vulnerability, uh, of really being completely exposed to the other person, their judgments, their thoughts, but also the, the possibility of being received and being loved in that space. I believe traveling through these layers of vulnerability are the layers of this stop lying to one another that we're being called to in the scripture. And then receiving the kind of love that results in the peace that ends up with the control of our hearts. Or this is the logic of like 12-step programs, of, of going in with your brokenness, sharing it, having people that have gone through it too, and in that connection, finding the control, finding the ability to choose. This is the beauty of confession, right? Of being able to go in and share what's happening. But we're, we're called... To even more radical dependence on others, to a life of continual dependence on others. You know, I've, I've pondered some um, the difference between despair and surrender. Despair and surrender. And I think the raw material of either is getting to a point where you realize you're hopeless, right? A hopeless point of I can't do this. And the difference between despair and surrender, I realized, is connection. Right? If if, I, if there isn't someone else there to help, I have despair, right? I might as well die, right? And all the, the terrible side that comes with that. On the other hand, if I can turn that hopelessness into surrender, I need to surrender to someone. right. And that's the, that's the logic at the heart of the 12-step program, and I think also at the heart of the gospel uh, is that the, the heart of surrender is connection. And in that raw material of getting to that place in your life, we you realize, I cannot do this. And I believe strongly that, that there's something in every Christian's life that that you get to this point. I think some, um, some commentators have called this a predominant fault or a core wound or something like that. But there's something in each of us that we hit a point and we realize, I simply am not enough. Learning more information, trying harder, writing out all of the charts in the world, uh, doing all of the accountability and and boundaries and everything else, none of that's enough. That in order to overcome whatever it is, we need someone to enter into it with us as we're struggling. We need to be loved in that space. Now with that said, a lot of caveats here. You know, you need to honor yourself. You don't just want to give away your heart to everyone. Uh, You need to give it to the right person. You need to forge and build those relationships where the, the trust is slowly nurtured and you pass through a, a great talk is The Seven Levels of Intimacy by Matthew Kelly. I'll, I'll link uh, to it in the show notes. But passing through that, then it's me letting the relationship truly grow. But I would be willing to bet that everyone has someone in their life who they've gone partway through the journey with, that they feel that close to, your spouse, your best friends, family members. And the question is, how can I go a little bit deeper? To the next layer down, share a little bit more, ask for a little bit more help, receive a little bit more love. And it's in that posture of receiving, of recognizing the truth of our dependence and our, our, our ultimate destiny for unity and living that now, like the kingdom of, of God is at hand, right? living that that unity now is where we'll ultimately be perfected. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awakened Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.